Welcome to the First Assembly podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message and find encouragement through the Holy Spirit. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible or a device, open with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2. If we've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Cody. And I have the immense privilege of being a part of the team here at First Assembly, and we're just delighted that you chose to spend some time with us this morning, whether here in person or online. And I just want to take a second uh, to pray as we launch into the Word this morning. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. Teacher, come. We invite you to speak to us now to till the soil of our heart, that the seed of your word would be planted deep within us and it would produce much fruit. We pray these things in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're new or joining us this morning, we are in the midst of a series called Christmas in the Country. And over the course of this series, we've examined a few things. The sort of first song of Christmas, which we know as Mary's Magnificat, which we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to about 52. Last week, Mary carried on the series talking about the journey of the Christmas story as she highlighted the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, that there's a long and winding story that brings us to the point we are at in this season. And this morning, we have the immense privilege of chatting about fields. Are you with me? Amen. Well, in his sermon on the third Sunday of Advent in 1933, the great theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer spoke these words to a congregation in London, England. We need to make clear to ourselves how from now on, in light of the manger, we are going to think about what is high and what is low in human life. Bonhoeffer continued, there are many more people with small amounts of power, petty power, who put it into play wherever they can and whose one thought is keep climbing higher. God, however, thinks differently, namely keep climbing down lower, down among the lowly and the inconspicuous in self forgetfulness, not seeking to be looked at or well-regarded or to be the highest. Friends, God thinks differently. Keep climbing down lower. These words invite us this morning to pause and reflect in this Christmas season and all of our self-efforts to climb higher, to produce more and move in upward mobility. Have we lost sight of God? Put uh, differently, maybe, have we forgotten that our God delights to reveal his glory not amongst those who seek to move higher, but among those who seek to move down lower? In a culture consumed by consumption with the fanfare of lights and cities, distractions, diversions, and entertainment, and the continuous pressure to prove our value by production, have we lost sight of God? You know, the stories of the Christmas season, they 
confront us with the sobering reality that if we seek to move the way of upward mobility, if we buy into the mantra of our culture that the good life, true success is moving up and to the right, that is the map and the pathway for human flourishing, we will, if we do this, lose sight of God. Well, if we want to encounter and experience God, the one who puts on flesh and tabernacles among us, we must move the way of downward mobility. Because hear me, if we move the way of downward mobility, we will encounter God in the fullness of his glory with the fanfare of a heavenly entourage that will proclaim to us once more peace in the land upon those whom God's favor rests. You see, the systems and the structures and the powers of our world, they urge us to seek the way of upward mobility, but God confounds the wisdom of the wise. He moves in downward mobility, which appears foolish and weak and dare I say lowly, but hear me, God chooses the appearance of foolishness to shame the wise, the weak in the world to shame the strong and the lowly and the despised to shame our human systems of value. Friends, in light of the manger, what is high has become low and what is low has been raised up. And the Christmas season confronts us with a profound reversal. And these reversals are at the heart of the text that we are examining this morning. Look there with me, Luke chapter two, I'll start reading at verse eight. And there were shepherds in that region, camping out in the field, guarding over their flock at night. And a messenger, or perhaps your translation says an angel of the Lord stood in front of them and the Lord's glory shone around them. And they, that is the shepherds, they were terrified. And so here now in Luke chapter two, verse eight, the scene shifts and we move into the third birth announcement from a heavenly messenger who reveals the identity and mission of a child that is about to be born. In the first scene, the messenger appears to an insignificant priest called Zechariah, declaring that his prayers have indeed been heard and his wife Elizabeth will bear a son and that son will cause many to rejoice because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. In the second scene, the messenger appears to a lowly, poor woman named Mary, declaring that Holy Spirit will come upon her. And the shadow of the Most High will overshadow her and the child to be born to her will be wholly called Son of God. And now here in this third scene, these angels or these messengers, they appear to unnamed, dirty, murderous shepherds in a field outside of the city, declaring great joy for all humanity because a rescuer has been born. The long-awaited King And the sign of this noble king's birth will be swaddling clothes and his placement in a feeding trough. Notice that in each of these initial movements of the narrative of Luke's gospel, we're invited into a vision for the world being turned upside down. Are you with me? Luke is here depicting what some scholars call cosmic reversals. Peasants, not rulers. The poor, not the rich, the lowly, not the significant are magnified in the sight of God. In these first chapters of the gospel, our expectations are subverted. They're turned upside down and we are invited to reevaluate what we value as human beings. We're invited to reevaluate what is high 
What are the things that we value most in the systems that we make in the world and to reevaluate what we consider to be lowly or insignificant? In other words, the, these three birth announcements, they confound the wisdom of the wise. They scatter the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. They comfort the afflicted while I think they simultaneously scandalize the comfortable. These three announcements confront us with the fact that God raises up the marginalized. He raises up the destitute and the poor, that God delights in the outcast, while those of high status wielding cultural prestige and prescribed value are stripped of their powers and their thrones. In this third scene, these themes are made clear by God's glorious revelation, not to patriarchs, not to prophets, not to high priests, but to simple shepherds in a field. You know, in our sacred writings, um, there are many key figures that play the role of a shepherd. You know, think of Abraham before leaving his country and his kindred to move to the land that God will give to them, or Moses on the plains of Midian before he becomes a liberator of God's people from slavery in Egypt, or perhaps David in the field before he receives his anointing. Or if you just read through the prophets, you see that shepherd becomes a general metaphor to describe leaders in the house of Israel. And while the role and metaphor of being a shepherd in the scriptures is generally positive, In the Greco-Roman world, the world within which Luke is writing his gospel, shepherds were despised. In the Greco-Roman world, shepherds were considered insignificant. They were dirty. They lacked power. They're really rough around the edges. And, And most often, they were murderous. They were murderers themselves because they were forced to deal with wild animals, conflicts with villagers, and honestly, most often, to deal with thieves who came to steal by night. In other words, the fields were sparsely populated and it made them a a sort of a haven for nomads and deviants and wild beasts and the worst of all murderous thieves to come by night. And it's in these fields, follow me this morning, it's in these fields, not in a city, not in a palace and not in the temple as these shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks, sitting in the darkness of night that they experienced light breaking forth as the glory of God was manifested with the announcement that a child has been born and a son has been given, and they were understandably terrified. And these words, of course, fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet, who in Isaiah chapter 9 spoke these words, the people walking in darkness has seen a big light. Those living in deathly gloom, light has shone upon them because a child has been born to us and a son has been given But these words of Isaiah chapter 9 actually echo earlier words from Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord, he will give you a sign. There will be a girl who is pregnant and she's going to give birth to a son and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The fulfillment of these prophecies comes here in Luke chapter 2. Are you with me? But notice not by like divine radiance in the temple to priests or to palaces with kings, but it comes to lowly shepherds outside of the city in a field. And I just want to invite you this morning to allow the significance of this to sink in. The fullness of the divine glory here is manifested in the wrong places at the wrong time with the wrong people. In the words of David Jeffrey Lyle, small wonder... These were not patriarchs or prophets or high priests, but simple men 
that the doxa, that is the glory or beauty of the Lord, should shine around humble shepherds on a Judean hillside is an event of enormous portent and hugely counterintuitive to normal religious thinking. The shepherds are understandably unprepared as anyone would be in their place for they can only relate what they see to the bright Shekinah glory of God's holy presence in the tabernacle. And then he asks this line, how could such a presence be borne by unhallowed men? How can the divine glory, the very presence of God be borne by irreligious and ungodly human beings? The story demonstrates here that God is willing. He does break forth in the strangest places outside of the limelight with all the wrong people who seemingly have no regard for the weight of his glory. Are you with me? The field should cause us to wonder, wonder with me this morning, church. If the presence of God is not manifested more palpably, more, it's, it's more present and real outside of the places that we deem fit and with the people we deem to be unworthy. You see, God breaks into the darkness of night. He enters into the shadow of death, revealing his glory, not to human beings who are climbing the ladder of economic or spiritual success, but God moves in spite of all of our human systems of value and worth. The world tells you, try harder, climb the ladder, then you will reach God, then you will reach success. And the story shows us that God breaks in right where these humans are with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. We are so ashamed of our lowliness. So many of us try to hide our weaknesses. Maybe that's just me. We feel as though we have to put on masks or play the role of being put together or thinking that we have to clean ourselves up to come to God. But hear me, God delights shining in the midst of darkness. This is the scandal of the Christmas story that God is not ashamed of lowliness that God uses the weak as his instruments, that God performs wonders where we least expect them and God is near to the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Zechariah, Mary, and now these shepherds not only experience, but they carry the weight of the divine presence. And naturally, these angels appear before them and light breaks forth directly in the midst of their darkness and these shepherds were terrified. You know, fear is the most common response to the manifest presence of God throughout the storyline of our scriptures. People feel fear. They feel awe and reverence. They're, they're, they're rendered silent. They can't speak. And I wonder for us, as we contemplate this story together this morning, when was the last time the presence of God rendered us silent? Maybe a more important question for us this morning, when was the last time we allowed the gospel to scandalize us? Chapter 2, verse 10, and the angel or the messenger said to them, do not be afraid. Behold, I gospel to you great joy that will be for all the people because today a rescuer who is the Lord, the Messiah has been birthed for you in the city of David. And this will be the authenticating sign for you. You will find an infant in swaddle, you find an infant swaddled and lying in a feeding trough, or maybe your translation says manger. So here the shepherds are terrified. They're experiencing the radiance of the glory of God. And the angels say to them, do not fear. You must not 
fear. You know, this is the most common command in the story of the scriptures. You must not fear. They must not fear because the gospel has come to them, which will cause great joy for all people because the rescuer, the Lord, the Messiah, or your translation might say Christ has been born in the city of David. If you're underlining or taking notes this morning, notice that there are three words that are used to describe the child here. The rescuer, the Lord, and the Messiah. And these three terms, I think they define the purpose and the power and the position of this newly born child. First and foremost, the child will rescue and deliver the people. Are you with me? The word describes his purpose. The purpose of the child being born is to rescue his people from slavery and from oppression. And the word that's used here is soter in Greek and is most often used in Jewish literature to describe the work of God liberating, rescuing, and redeeming Israel from their oppression and slavery. But second, the child will be Lord over the people. We have to distinguish terms here. Not only will the child rescue the people, the the child will be Lord over whom the child rescues. You know, it's interesting. The terms that are used here by Luke, the term soter and kurios in Greek, these were used to describe gods in Greek literature. They were used to describe people of ambition, but most importantly, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the empire, these are terms that were used to describe Caesar. He is Lord and he is Savior. And and these words now that were used in the Roman Empire, in Roman imperial propaganda, are being used to describe the birth of a child in a feeding trough. Talk about subversive. But finally, the child will be head of the people of God, the messianic king. The word Christ or Messiah quite literally means king. And this word describes his position. This child will lead the people of Israel. In fulfillment of the covenant made by God with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the king has come, the child will come to take permanent place on the throne of David. You know, we sing about it in many of our Christmas songs, but it's important that we remind ourselves Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And there's a necessary line in order to fulfill the promises of the scriptures. Jesus must come forced to be the messianic king of Israel in order to save the entire world. That Jesus' Jewishness, that he is the Messiah, is vital to who he is. He's not a 13th century Turk. He's not a 21st century Western white male. That's not who Jesus is. He comes as the Jewish Messianic king in fulfillment of the storyline of the scriptures. And in doing that, Jesus becomes the liberator of the entire cosmos. And these three terms, rescuer, Lord, and Messiah, they raise the expectations for the birth of this child, for divine deliverance through this long-awaited king, while they simultaneously challenge the claims made by the Roman Empire that Augustus was Savior and Lord who will bring the gospel of peace to the world. Not only does this tell us who this child is, but it speaks against the propagandas of our world. The terms challenge the political powers and ideologies that existed in the first century, and they continue to challenge the political powers and ideologies in our day. Follow me this morning, friends. If the one who is born is the sovereign, 
If the child that is born is the deliverer, the one who rescues and redeems, who establishes life and peace, that must mean that the rulers of Rome and any other form of Rome that emerges are ultimately not sovereign. They cannot deliver. They cannot redeem. They cannot rescue or restore. And in spite of the fact that the political powers and ideologies from the first century to today lay claim that they can deliver, they can give life and bring peaceful utopia, they are ultimately incapable of delivering and rescuing. The claim of the story is that the kings and sovereigns of our human systems have the world upside down. They do not have power. This child has the power. They claim to rule by means of harshness and force from their thrones, but in the incarnation, in God taking on human flesh, God brings down the rulers from their thrones. He exalts the humble and the meek, and he shows from his very birth the way of the true kingdom, which will have no end. I think if these terms are used to describe Jesus, that he is savior, he is Lord, he establishes the true kingdom, then we have to ask ourselves, where have we placed our allegiance? Where have we placed our dedication and our trust to what is powerful, to what is mighty, to what is shiny and new, to the rulers and to the governments of this age? in our own ability to bring about utopia or personal transformation or the fullness of life, I, just, I want to remind us this morning that this confounds the wisdom of the wise, regardless of who we are and where we come from. The only pathway towards liberation in life is through the government that rests upon the shoulders of this child, the kingdom of God. There is only one sovereign, only one ruler, the archon of the kings of the land, Jesus the Christ. He is the one who is the true king of the world. Our allegiance and our dedication, these things must be placed in this child, the only one who is the rescuer, the Lord, and the king. But notice, God does not simply raise up the lowly. In the story, God becomes the lowly. Are you with me? The chief authenticating sign, the way to recognize this royal child, the advent of the new kingdom, what are the signs? Swaddling clothing and a feeding trough. What is the gospel that brings great joy that emerges from the city of David? It's God's identification with our human condition. That God marches into our situations, that God takes on our lowliness, that God redefines what is high and what is low, upending and tearing down our human systems of value and of worth. Henry, now in the great spiritual writer, puts it this way, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That's what draws attention. That's what gets us on the front page of the newspaper and offers us the rewards of money and fame. But the way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets and choosing the last place. You see at the heart of the incarnation, at the heart of God becoming a human being, at the heart of the gospel is downward mobility. You know, the earliest followers of Jesus use many terms uh, and phrases to try to describe what has happened in God taking on human flesh and to describe the nature of the incarnation in the Christmas season. And the most common sort of phrase or description used in the earliest churches was he became what we are so that we might become what he is. He takes on our human condition, our lowliness, in order to raise us up to his position. 
You know, if I was forced to summarize the Christmas season in one line, I would use this line. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. Because in spite of royalty and kingship and power, the God of creation descends to take on humanity. Demonstrating the true power of his position by emptying himself, entering into our weakness, suffering, pain, and our lowliness. Athanasius of Alexandria, in his famous treatise on the Incarnation, put it this way. He saw the human race perishing and death and decay reigning over them. He saw that the penalty for our sin gave this corruption a firm hold over us, and that until the law was fulfilled, this could not be changed. He saw how awful it was and that his own work was passing away. He saw the great wickedness of humanity and how it had grown little by little to an intolerable pitch. He saw all humanity under penalty of death. And seeing this, let this sink in, he took pity on our race, had mercy on our weakness, and lowered himself to our corruption. Whereas the famous hymn reminds us, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth and born to give us second birth. You see, in spite of the scandal, the news, the news that is emerging here, this child that is upending the kingdoms and the thrones of our world, this child will bring great joy for all people. In other words, this child brings joy, not judgment. Are you with me? In spite of our immense, in spite of their immense fear at the sight of the heavenly entourage, the news is meant to bring about immense joy. And according to our scriptures, joy is not so much an emotion. It's more a state of being. It's it's an inner confidence, a sort of non-anxious, settled contentment in spite of our circumstances. And they are here announcing quite literally mega joy. They're announcing deep inner confidence and non-anxious confidence, not judgment or fear because the gospel is here to bring joy to all people. Joy emerges here in this story because God identifies with the lowly. He brings joy to those whose lives have become fragmented, those whose lives are run down by oppression, those who have waited in darkness. This joy emerges because the child has been sent to bring gospel to the lowly, to bind up the people who are broken in mind, to release captives, to open the eyes of prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide a garment of praise instead of a flickering spirit. I wonder this morning, do you know the true joy of this season? Not the lights, not the gifts, not the concerts or shows. Those are all fine, but the joy because God has come among us. The joy that emerges because God goes to the wrong places with the wrong people at the wrong time. He comes to you and to me. Verse 13, unexpectedly. With the messenger, there was a heavenly army praising God and saying, glory is God's in the highest places. And on the earth among human beings, peace is for those who have found favor with him. You know, unexpectedly, there's an army that appears in the field, (laughs) the heavenly entourage that emerges with an acclamation of praise. You know, most of our English translations translate this as the heavenly hosts. But quite literally in Greek, the phrase means the heavenly army. Heaven's army declares the glory of God in the highest 
places, the army appears in order to sing honor of their victorious king, to praise the child who has come to destroy the power of evil, and they declare peace for those upon whom his favor rests. The heavenly army declares shalom, peace for those upon whom God's favor rests. It's an important word in the storyline of the scriptures, the word peace or shalom. The most basic meaning is that it means to make something complete or to make something whole. Shalom is the reality of what was on page one of our story in the garden. It's what can now be on account of the birth of this child and what will one day be again in the new heavens and the new earth. Where sin disintegrates and isolates, shalom brings together and restores. Where fear and shame throw up walls, lock doors, and put on masks, shalom breaks down barriers and frees us from all forms of falsehood. As beautifully articulated by Cornelius Platinga, within the biblical narrative, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. But the question I puzzled over as I prepared for this teaching this week is, who receives peace? And I actually had an email exchange with one of the most prolific New Testament scholars in the world to try to figure out what the Greek is doing here. And I think it's easy to downplay the syntax of verse 14. Or put differently, it's easy to miss the nuance of what chapter 2 verse 14 is saying. We have to ask ourselves, who receives this peace? Who are those upon whom God's favor rests? And the answer to that question is Mary, Zechariah, and the shepherds. Follow me this morning. It's important that we see this. God's favor rests upon the lowly, the marginalized, the broken, and the struggling. Peace in the land. The peace is for those upon whom God's favor rests. God's favor rests upon those who are lowly. In other words, not everyone gets to receive the gift of peace. The gift of peace would come to human beings who order their lives in such a way that they would welcome it. The child is born not for those who perceive themselves to be healthy or righteous or have it all together, but those who are lowly and sick and in need of healing. I think if we're going to take the aims of Luke's gospel seriously, we have to conclude that those who receive peace, those upon whom God's favor rests, are not the higher-ups, but the lowly. Those who recognize their deep need, their lowliness. And at the heart of the story this morning, at the heart of the fields and the shepherds, we are confronted with the truth of the gospel that our God, the God of our scriptures, is the God who moves down, down, down. God magnifies the marginalized. He brings the mighty down from their thrones. He redefines what is high and what is low and invites us not to try to move upward, but to move downward, to move among the lowly and the inconspicuous, to tread the pathway of self-forgetfulness, to recognize the power of God in weakness, to seek not to be well-regarded or the highest, but to take the position of a servant to move down, down, down. Into the upside-down kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where the king and ruler of the entire cosmos comes in swaddling clothing to be placed 
in a feeding trough. You see, this morning, friends, the gospel, the story of Christmas reminds us that we do not need to try to climb higher. We do not need to try to produce more or fight tooth and nail for upward mobility or climb some sort of religious ladder to get to God. The story tells us that God comes down to us. You see, the way of God is not moving upward. The way of God is moving downward. And so three things this morning, if you're taking notes, three really important things that emerge from this text. The first thing is the danger of familiarity. You know, Mary, um, Mary Zinga mentioned this last week, uh, but I, I want to highlight this again, that as we approach certain passages in the Bible, there are some sections where the problem is not that we're unfamiliar with it, that we're just too familiar with it. Are you with me? We're far too familiar. We think we know the stories, that we've got all the details figured out. And in coming to the story so confident, we don't really read the story or experience the details. We just sort of pass by it quickly. And we end up missing the scandal of the Christmas story. That the glory of God is being manifested in a field when it should be coming back to the temple. That the glory of God is being manifested to shepherds when it should be coming to priests. We have to experience the weight of this scandal that God shines upon the irreligious and the ungodly in the wrong places and at the wrong times. So I wonder, are we making space this Christmas? Are we curating a vision to welcome God and to recognize his presence among those whom we, uh, we deem to be irreligious and ungodly in the wrong places at the wrong times? Are we open to the movement of God in this Christmas season? That he comes to us and he comes to those around us to have great hope that God is at work with the irreligious and the ungodly and he is redeeming beyond the boundaries of our walls and our people. Are you with me? Second, I want to remind us of the nearness of God. Notice that in this story, God comes straight into our brokenness. He comes straight into human suffering and shame. He takes on human flesh and human frailty. You know, as a, as a human being, but in particular as a pastor, I am very aware that holidays and Christmas seasons, that so many things emerge for us deep within, whether it be family of origin, brokenness, or trauma that we've experienced, that the holidays are a really difficult time for so many people. And I just, I want to show you that, that we, this story shows us that we can find God in our suffering and our suffering in God. I wonder this morning, we know the God who is, you know, lofty, the God who rules in the highest places, the one who is victorious over sin and death, who is healing disease, but do we know this God? The one who comes in human flesh, who takes on the fullness of our human condition, he enters into our story to redeem the story from within. Do we know this God? And the absolute power of this story is that when we suffer, it is not so much that God is with us, but that we are with God. He is the God who suffers. One scholar puts it this way, we suffer, God suffers much more. Our God is a suffering God. Suffering conforms humanity to God. The suffering person is in the likeness of God. Wherever one of us in physical or social or moral or religious weakness is aware of our existence and likeness to God, there we are sharing in God's life. There we feel God being with us. There we are open for God's strength. That is God's grace, God's love, God's comfort, which passeth all understanding and all human values. 
The story shows us that God is glorified in the lowly. Just as God in Christ was glorified by being born in swaddling clothing and placed in a feeding trough. But finally, if you're taking notes, if you walk away with one thing this morning, it is the invitation to move in downward mobility. The Christmas story invites us into the way of the dawning kingdom, the way of cosmic reversal. You see, we say something is lost, but God declares it to be found. We say something is condemned, but God says it is saved. We say no, but God says yes. We turn our eyes away in indifference and in arrogance, but God gazes with a love that glows warmer there than anywhere else. We say something is despicable and God calls it blessed. We hide away in our shame thinking that God is distant, but hear me, that is the moment in which God is closer than ever wanting to break into our lives, wanting us to feel the presence of the holy, to grasp the miracle of love and the nearness of grace. Friends, the throne of the King of Kings is set in our deepest abyss in a cave in a feeding trough. This is where the King of Kings chooses to be born. And around his throne are unknown, dubious looking figures, these shepherds. And those willing to come to the place of lowliness will experience profound joy and not judgment. And the peace that comes because we will become in our lowliness those upon whom God's favor rests. Those willing, hear me, to renounce the way of upward mobility and embrace the joy of the season, which is a cheerful revolt against arrogance and pride. We're invited into the actual story here, not to celebrate in fanfare or in cities or in bright lights, but to rest in the joyful peace of the one who comes to unsuspected places with unsuspecting people like you and like me. Not in cities, not in fanfare, but in fields with shepherds. We are joyfully confronted with the sobering reality that if we seek the way of upward mobility, we will lose sight of God. But if we move the way of downward mobility, we will encounter God in the fullness of his glory with the fanfare of the heavenly army declaring to us that peace has come to the land upon those whom his favor rests. And so as we end this morning, I invite us to say with Mary that the Lord has looked with favor upon our lowliness that we would magnify the Lord and our spirit would rejoice in God, our savior, the one who has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts and removed the powerful from their thrones. May we say with Zechariah this Christmas season that by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high has come upon us, giving light to us who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death in order that our feet may be guided into the way of peace. And may we, like these shepherds, glorify God and praise him for all that we have seen and heard. Friends, at the heart of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, we are reminded that mild he lays his glory by. He moves in downward mobility, born that humans no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us a second birth. And so hark the herald angels sing glory to this newborn king. Let's pray together. God, we thank you together this morning that you confound the wisdom of the wise, that you scatter the proud and the imagination of their hearts, 
God, we thank you that we don't need to climb a ladder or produce more or move upward and to the right in the way of upward mobility as our culture would tell us, but we just need to move down, down, down because it's there in a cave, in a feeding trough, in swaddling clothes that you are to be found. That you don't demand that we climb higher, but you come down to us in flesh. God, thank you that you delight in revealing your glory in fields, in those country fields, to shepherds, to lowly people like me. God, thank you that you are at work and you are working. Thank you that you are near to the broken. God, thank you that the gospel is profoundly scandalizing and there is joy to be found in it, not judgment. And that as we tread the pathway of downward mobility, we will find you there. May this be our posture this Christmas season. We pray these things in the name of your Son and of our Savior, Jesus. And together we all said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message. We pray that you have received truth and have been encouraged. For more information about First Assembly, how to get connected, and to listen to our latest worship albums, please visit our website at www.fa.church.